Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got a couple of good martinis for you, so grab a stool and uh, enjoy. We also have a not-so-good martini to wrap things up. And Jim, let's begin with polling. This is not a good martini if you're Joe Biden, but it is if you're looking to shake up Washington this fall with Republicans doing well in the midterm elections. You talk about it a lot today in the morning jolt, including the fact that uh, in this Monmouth poll, only 74 percent of Democrats approve of Joe Biden's job performance, which seems like a good number. But usually that number is at least around the high 80s, if not into the 90s, uh, regardless of uh, which party has the presidency. So it's 74 percent. Definitely not in the position he would like to be in at this point. Uh, We're also going to talk about what voters see as the biggest concerns, according to the Monmouth poll. And for some reason, they break down a lot of similar issues into separate categories. So the biggest concern is inflation at 33 percent. Gas prices is second at 15 percent. The economy is third at 9 percent. And bills slash groceries are fourth at 6%. So, Jim, if you add those up, that's 63% of uh, the nation's uh, biggest concerns right now are all tied up in the economy, from inflation to bills to the overall economy. Uh, The next after that is abortion at 5%. And I know, shockingly, for some on the left, Jim, once again, climate change down there at 1%. So uh, there's really only one overall encompassing issue that's going to drive these midterms. It's obvious which one it is, and it's obvious which party it favors right now. Yeah, Greg, first of all, I want to thank you for spotlighting that odd. It, it was an open-ended question, and they just asked people, what is preeminent on your mind? What's your biggest worry? And people were giving different versions of similar answers. I'd understand that. But when you list grocery prices and inflation separately, you can't <laughs> help but get the feeling you're trying to split up this demographic. Because I'd like to hear the people who are like, my problem is grocery prices, but not inflation. <laughs> or my problem is inflation, but honestly, what I'm paying at the supermarket, that's just fine. <laughs> you know, it's, it really strikes me as all one big jumble. Now, I, I could see certain people when the first thing that comes to their mind is gas prices or something like that. Maybe that's they just filled up their tank and they saw the numbers keep going up higher and that's what's freshest in their mind. But it does seem like that. But yes, that is all that. And I think what is most notable is that back when the uh, Alito draft leaked, I had pointed out, it's like, look, you know, you look at the Gallup polling of what is the preeminent issue facing the country. Month after month, abortion got about 1%, uh, just above asterisk status. And so I was like, look, you know, is, is a overturning of Roe v. Wade going to make it a bigger decision? Sure, no doubt about that. But I don't really think it's going to overtake inflation or uh, high gas prices or high grocery prices, or for that matter, the border or a couple other issues that I think are perennial, uh, you know, high priorities of American voters. And I got a lot of grief on that from the, you know, Mensa candidates over on Twitter. And yes, it did go from 1% to 5%. So, you know, technically, Greg, that's a 500% increase. (laughs) Uh, But it still is one out of every 20 respondents. It's really not a dramatic game changer certainly doesn't seem like it's going to be the sort of thing that uh, changes the outcome or the the uh, narrative of the midterm elections and i think that's you know we, we shouldn't be surprised by that you know um you know i put some one of my colleagues had asked the question how many times is abortion 
the preeminent issue in your life. And obviously that comes in when someone has an unwanted pregnancy. Hopefully that doesn't happen very often in their life. Maybe it does. But even in the cases where it does, it's going to happen. I hope, God, I hope it's not on a yearly basis. I hope it's rare. Whereas groceries, you're probably buying them once a week or so. Filling up your tank, you're probably doing that once every week or once every two weeks or so. Some people who drive a lot for their work probably are filling up much more often. So you add all that up. You're going to get those reminders all the time. The issue of abortion is not going to be front and center in your life unless you're in those very particular circumstances. So uh, we shouldn't be surprised by this. I, I think, you know, I, I kind of want to do a touchdown dance on everybody who's given me grief for saying this back during the Alito uh, draft leaking. Um, just one, you know, just stacking up bad news for the Democrats in that result. And Monmouth is not known, certainly isn't, you know, um, perceived to be a Rasmussen-like pollster or something like that. Uh, the, the other thing that kind of just jumps out about that are the sheer number of people who say the government, the fe- actions of the federal government have hurt my life in the past year. And they're really surprisingly high. This is a terrible time to be an incumbent. People believe the government has hurt them, not helped them, as they're trying to deal with all of this really high inflation. No, that's that's exactly right. And uh, interestingly, on abortion, there's a new poll out from uh, Harvard and Harris uh, showing that, yes, uh, more people oppose overturning Roe by 55 to 45, but 72 percent of Americans support an abortion ban after 15 weeks and 49 percent after six weeks. So even among that 5 percent, you don't necessarily know that it's all uh, people who are upset with the decision. But uh, most of them probably are if it's if it's if it's first to their to their mind right now. But interestingly, uh, those numbers might uh, inform how that issue plays out in the fall as well. But right now, whenever the economy stinks, it's hard to come up with an issue that's going to uh, compete with it unless you're in a full out war. Uh, let's move on to our first sponsor of the day, and that is the Presidential Election Project. Fortunately for Joe Biden, he's not on the ballot this year, uh, but 2024 is coming soon. And we're brought to you in part today by the Presidential Election Project. Biden might be on the ballot in 2024, or maybe not. (laughs) But imagine a scenario in 2024 that is similar to 2020, with a lot of questions about irregularities in votes, and maybe even debates and recounts of votes in key states. But this time, it wouldn't be Mike Pence. It would be Vice President Kamala Harris, who would be urged to interpret her role in the process as one where she has the right to determine which electoral votes count and which ones shouldn't. And why? Because the Electoral Count Act just isn't specific enough. The Presidential Election Project wants to see this changed. Go to presidentialelectionproject.com now, sign up to get their updates and learn more about this very important procedural ceremony and what steps Congress is taking to reform and clarify our electoral process. The project urges you, again, to visit presidentialelectionproject.com and sign up to get the updates so that by 2024, there's no question that Vice President Harris will not have the power to overturn the results of the election. Presidentialelectionproject.com. The evidence is clear. More guns, less crime. So why is there a relentless push for more gun control? On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, I talk with Dr. John Lott of the Crime Prevention Research Center about why mass shootings occur and how telling the truth about guns got him fired and how the media are only interested in one side of this debate. Join us. Follow The Bill Walton Show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On to our second good martini for the day. And uh, Jim, when you think of battleground states and uh, certainly throughout our 
political career, uh, some very famous ones come to mind. Uh, Florida, of course, 2000, Ohio, 2004, and then uh, some smaller states. Last last election, of course, Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin's been a battleground state the last couple cycles. But for Florida, that may be changing, and it may be changing fairly quickly. Politico with the story today that Florida's transformation into a red state continues to march forward. Uh, some evidence of that uh, in the last few days. First of all, Agricultural Commissioner Nikki Freed, who's running for governor and seems to be crazier than Charlie Crist, has been urging her supporters who may be Republicans or independents to switch their registration ahead of the August 23rd Democratic primary so they can vote for her over Charlie Crist. But the voter registration numbers overall continue to show that Democrats are getting left far behind. It's just another data point on why Republicans are supremely confident they will dominate the 2022 elections in a state where President Joe Biden is also struggling and Governor Ron DeSantis' approval numbers remain above water. They point out it was just last fall that Republicans for the first time surged past Democrats in the number of active voters in the state. Uh, the official Division of Election Records now show that Republicans hold a nearly 176,000 voter edge uh, over the Democrats, and it's getting bigger all the time. So, uh, Jim, I mean, Florida has generally trended right uh, over the last generation, but not always. We've certainly seen it uh, in a number of cases where that that didn't happen. DeSantis himself barely won uh, four years ago, had to go to a recount and so forth. So Florida certainly uh, has a history of being competitive, but it might not be that way for long. So my first question, Greg, is why does Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed think she has a lot of Republican and independent supporters. <laughs> the only reason they'd switch over is to help her become an easier person to beat in the fall. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't think about that. But yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe this is the, with the same way Democrats have been attempting to you know, support the least competitive candidate in the uh, uh, in Republican primaries. But I, I'm very, I, I guess she's saying, yes, both of you, my Republican supporters <laughs> should change their party registration. Um, it is kind of striking for those of us who are shaped by 2000 and this perception of Florida as the ultimate swing state. And I think even, you know, it's easy to forget Obama won the state twice. Now, not by a lot. It was always, you know, by a percentage point or two, but it was a deep disappointment to the Romney campaign and I think the McCain campaign as well. And there was this perception of, oh, you know, in fact, I, one of the factors that was really intriguing about that is that Obama started really narrowing the margin amongst Cuban Americans in Florida. And there was a whole bunch of articles that asked, you know, are Cuban-Americans becoming Democrats? Are they becoming more like uh, Latinos and Hispanics across the rest of the country? Is Castro and anti-communism just not a relevant issue to these folks anymore? Well, we saw Trump do significantly better in uh, 2016, and he did even better in the state in 2020. And an explicit argument that the Democrats are the party of socialism greatly helped by the efforts of Bernie Sanders and his refusal to say bad things about uh, Fidel Castro and Raul Castro and things like that, really have galvanized not just that, but I think also there's been this broader argument that while we've seen this other once red states get kind of purple or blue, uh, we talk about the Californication phenomenon of uh, you know states like Colorado and some of those other Western states, um, that, you know, Florida is a state that has gone from purple to red and now looks like it's getting deep red. Now, here's the thing. I don't think DeSantis is going to win 60-40 or something like that. But I do think it's very likely it's going to be much, you know, a, a much bigger win than he had in, in uh, uh, four years ago. 
And it's probably going to be the kind of solid win that makes Republicans say, oh, if he did this well in Florida, he's probably going to do really well across the country. And there'll be a lot of that. Oh, but I think one of the few things that could really derail a Ron DeSantis presidential bid is if this election, if first of all, he loses, then yeah, all of a sudden, uh, the idea of him being the kind of guy who can win Florida gets thrown into doubt. But I think also just the question, if it's a lot closer than expected, maybe that'll take some of the air out of the balloon for Ron DeSantis. But by and large, Florida is a state that has decided we're going to move in a more Republican direction. We want smaller government. They're well known as a state that doesn't have um, income taxes. And uh, as Charlie Cook likes to remind me and tweak my nose about this pretty regularly, <laughs> he likes to sing, you know, not just better weather, not just the presence of Disney World, at least for now, not just the beaches, not just everything else that's great. You also have this enormous tax advantage uh, because it's you know a good portion of what the state needs to fund is funded by people who have their second homes there. If you happen to be American's retirement home or the or the beach house uh, state of choice for lots of people in other in other who usually live in other states, you can tax the heck out of them and they will pay the taxes and thus your own state citizens who actually vote in the elections don't pay any of those taxes. So Florida's got a lot of advantages, a lot of people who like going there. And the great irony is what has been the response of Gavin Newsom to tell the state's remaining Democrats to move to California. <laughs> Republicans will be saying, yes, listen to Gavin Newsom. We'll, we'll help you pack your bags. Let's let's get the moving trucks in here. Come on. We got a whole bunch of liberals and Democrats. We got to get to move out here. Uh, look, it is going to be probably a really good year for Republicans from coast to coast. But Florida might be a real uh, dominant one. I think one of the intriguing factors here is that Marco Rubio is running for reelection this year. You haven't heard much about that. It's generally not considered to be a... Uh, uh, terribly competitive race. It's, it's you know, generally, you know, Rubio's seen as a pretty safe bet for re-election. And the fact, you know, this was not the case, necessarily the case six years ago, and it certainly was not the case back in 2010. So it's kind of this, mar you know, this fascinating phenomenon of the, the Sunshine State, certainly a dynamic state, quickly growing, lots of folks moving there. And it's not becoming more Democratic, it's becoming more Republican. Um, I think in a way you might say the epicenter of Republican politics has moved south down to the Sunshine State. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I assume Charlie Crist is going to win that uh, Democratic primary, which means he's positioning himself well to lose three statewide races in the last 12 years from trying to run as an independent after Rubio was clearly going to beat him for the Senate nomination in, in 2010 to losing to Rick Scott for governor. And it looks like he's headed there again. Obviously, you know, Team DeSantis has got to get its ducks in a row, play as hard as it can until Election Day. But it uh, looks like Charlie Crist is about to uh, lose again, which will be fun. You know, we made fun of Andrew Gillum or we pointed out the, you know, copious flaws he had as a candidate and as a human being. And we hope he finds uh, help for his addiction issues and things like that. But I guess he'd look back and say, well, at least Democrats are trying something new and different by nominating Gillum a couple of years ago. Nominating Charlie Chris, look, been there, done that. <laughs> Hasn't worked out for Florida Democrats. Yet they keep it. This is the time it's going to work. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's amazing. I'd love to compare his uh, gubernatorial platform this year to the one he won on in 2006, because I'm pretty sure it's completely a 180 from how he got elected as a Republican. But nonetheless, uh, let's talk about something far better than that, because Charlie Crist is going to have plenty of time to relax and take naps after November. Uh, and for that, he can get a my pillow or the sheets, or the towels, but the biggest deal right now going is the blowout sale on the My Slippers, my favorite, favorite product of all the great products from MyPillow. Regularly $139.98. You can now save $90. The blowout price, $49.98, with our promo code Martini. The My Slippers took two years to develop with an exclusive four-tier cushioning system. 
You've got the MyPillow patented fill. You've got the comfort memory foam. You've got the patented impact gel and the indoor outdoor sole. So you can wear these slippers indoors, outdoors, wherever you like all day long. The My Slippers are made with quality leather suede. They're available in a variety of styles, colors, and sizes. They're machine washable and they come with a 60 day money back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. So go to MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104 for the My Slippers at only $49.95. While you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the buy one, get one free extravaganza on bed sheets, MyPillows, and more. Visit MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104 today for the most comfortable slippers you'll ever own. That's true. And get Mike's book free. MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800 800- 874-0104. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now, which is also bad. Um, but you think there's actually some 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 honesty going on here, which is a sliver of good. Um, there was violence not only in the uh, Chicago suburbs on July 4th. Uh, two police officers were shot on the evening of July 4th in Philadelphia. Uh, the mayor there is a guy named Jim Kenny, and so that night he was uh, off at the scene talking to the media, and he had some curious comments that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a mayor, particularly in this particular situation, but he basically says, you know what? I'm tired of all this. I'm kind of looking forward to not being mayor anymore. I don't enjoy Fourth of July. I don't enjoy the the, the Democratic National Convention. I didn't enjoy the the um, um, uh, NFL draft. I'm waiting for something bad to happen all the time. So it's I'll be happy when I'm not here when I'm not mayor and I can enjoy some stuff. So you're looking forward to not being mayor? Yeah. Yeah. So Jim, I'm obviously if you're a, you know an executive, whether it's a city or a state or president of the United States, you're constantly concerned about security situations. That's part of your job as a responsibility. But when you're actively looking forward to not having that responsibility anymore, maybe you should just hit the bricks. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if quite a few Philadelphians, already known for their sympathetic and understanding attitude <laughs> towards people undergoing hardship, whether it's booing Santa Claus or throwing batteries at players or booing Michael Irvin as he's carted off. I know Philadelphians, you're saying you were great or whatever it was, whatever, you know. Uh, Look, Philadelphia is a tough town and I cannot help but get the feeling that a lot of people would see those comments and say, you know, if the job is really that hard, why don't you quit? If you really can't stand it, if it's really, you know, and yet I do, as I said, I think there's a little silver lining to this. I think this is an exceptionally honest statement from the mayor. And in fact, worrying is a little bit of the job of a uh, elected official. If your city is hosting a big event, if you do have some big holiday coming up, some sort of large gathering, then yeah, you should be worrying about what's going wrong. That's part of the job. That's part of responsible leadership. Not just to assume things are going to work out on their own, but to have a little bit of that, you know, I guess sometimes you could call constructive anxiety. Um, A lot of people I talk to actually describe this phenomenon before they go on a vacation, before they uh do any big undertaking they they i don't know if it's a form of anxiety but it's a sense of ah, what could go wrong ah, i have a feeling something's going to go bad and they, they end up they plan they double check they actually they turn that into something useful a certain discipline for looking at every aspect of what they can control and making sure they've checked to make sure it doesn't go wrong what he's describing there though was a response to really horrible violence in the city around the fourth of july weekend now look you're used to having Big gatherings, sometimes people drink too much, people hold fireworks, they blow off some of their fingers. You know, it's unfortunate. Some of that is kind of baked in the cake of a 4th of July celebration in a major metropolitan city. But we have seen crime rates going up. We have seen increasing street violence. And it does seem like 
something is going terribly wrong in these cities. I don't have to remind you which party is running them. I don't really have to remind you which kind of philosophy generally has been applied in the running of these cities for a long stretch. And I do think there's something like, you know, he's reaching the point where he's like, I hate this job. I hate what I'm doing. And I think most people would say, maybe it's best for him to go. That Mayor Kinney, maybe this isn't job, this isn't for you. And, and the last aspect that I almost like, because I was writing about the, uh, yesterday about the uh, complaining about the dysfunction within the White House. And, you know, on this podcast, we have ripped into Joe Biden many, many times that he deserves it. But let's point out uh, what was described in this big in-depth CNN article is apparently just like basics of governance weren't getting done. Um, People in Capitol, members of Congress call up the White House offering to help with something and nobody returns their calls. Uh, They don't get invited to events. They don't get thank you notes when they help out with the administration. Um, Just basic keeping the lines of communication open apparently is this Biden White House is having great difficulty with. And some of that's on the president, but some of that is on Ron Klain. Some of that is on Susan Rice. Some of that is on that senior staff. And you can't use the excuse that, oh, they just got into the job. Now you've been in the job a year and a half. You, you've settled in for quite a while now. This is, this is about as good as it gets. Uh, most people expect that there's going to be turnover after the midterm elections. And so what I wrote was that uh, Biden probably couldn't be saved even if he had a really good staff. But he doesn't have a really good staff. I think we've now seen what we need to see. This is a bad staff around a bad president. They're not good, not just in the big stuff, trying to get Build Back Better passed when you only have a 50-50 Senate or something like that. No, they're not good at remembering returning phone calls. They're not good at remembering to send thank you notes. <laughs> they're not good. Like, this is the really basic stuff. And I've dealt with a lot of you know offices up on Capitol Hill. And some of them are really, really good. They're, they're quick about returning phone calls. They're professional. There's just this you know, attitude of discipline. We get things done. I think it's very clear this doesn't exist in this White House. So I'd really like to see Ron Klain to wake up one day and feel kind of like this, this mayor of Philadelphia and say, you know what? I'm not good at this job. I'm not good at this job, but I'm not performing well in this job. I'd also like if Joe Biden had that feeling, uh, but I'm not <laughs> counting on that. And But, you know, this recognition that some people aren't meant for their dream jobs. Some people aren't meant for these positions of awesome responsibility. Some people falter when they're in this situation. I think we've seen a lot of faltering in American life over the last couple of years. So really, you put this you know, in light of this the idea of a Democratic office holder looking at their city looking at all the problems, looking at things getting worse and saying, wow, I'm terrible at this and I hate this job and I'd probably be happier doing something else. I don't feel all that bad. I kind of see this as a necessary step to improvement. So that's my silver lining to an otherwise really bad martini (laughs) of the mayor of Philadelphia saying, yeah, I, I can't handle this job anymore. This is too much. This city is ungovernable. No, it's ungovernable by you. Maybe it's time to give somebody else a shot. Yeah. Major cities. Uh, I mean, people who live in a lot of major cities right now will tell you it's very, very different than it was just a couple of years ago. I don't ever remember, or it's been a long time since I remember interns uh, that we have every summer talking about you know things that scared them uh, in the city. Last year, uh, we had an intern who was at Nationals Park when there was gunfire outside the park that mm-hmm. everybody could clearly hear and sent everybody into a panic. And this year, we had uh, someone with uh, their vehicle vandalized uh, in a pretty good part of town, supposedly. So, I mean, things are just changing and not for the better. Meanwhile, Jim Kenney has now decided, uh, since those comments... <laughs> 
from from Monday night uh, that he uh, visited Canada recently. And he said, quote, the only people I knew who had a gun were police officers. And that's the way it should be here. Only police should have guns. Meanwhile, Jazz Shaw over at Hot Air points out that Jim Kenney came into office in Philadelphia promising to empty the jails and defund the police. So, Jim, (laughs) he doesn't want the police to have any funding, but he wants them to be the only ones armed. Seems a little inconsistent, but uh, maybe that's why he's having a little trouble. Greg, did he miss all the news about Uvalde? Oh, only cops should have uh, guns. Well, we saw in Uvalde when citizens are literally restrained by police to not intervene with that. Well, really, when there's a dangerous situation, only the police should have firearms and only the police should be allowed to respond to a life and death situation involving school children, because trust us, the cops will handle it just fine. Or they'll fail and your loved ones will die because, you know, they've, for whatever reason, cowardice or bureaucratic inertia, whatever the heck it was, things will go wrong. There's a reason people will prefer to have, many people prefer to have a firearm to defend themselves. And, you know, this mayor is in denial about that, you know, basic fact of life. Oh, by the way, defund the police and also only the police should be able to protect you. You know, if you don't see any contradiction there, um, maybe it's just time for him to leave the office, clean up the desk, get out. No one's going to miss you. Philadelphians will have more fond memories of Santa Claus. (laughs) Oh, Philly. Yeah, if any place should be festive on July 4th, it should be Philly. I mean, obviously, that's where everything went down on July 4th, 1776. So uh, they should have the best celebration of all. But, uh, Jim, that's where we're going to call it for today. Have a great Wednesday. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. And don't forget to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch if you don't already. And tell a friend about us as well. Uh, Thank you also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Those are a huge help to us, so please keep those coming. Also, you can get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday. And please join us on Thursday for the next three martini lunch this week on the federalist radio hour it's kind of used or held up by the legacy media um, as a representation of christianity anytime there's a struggle anytime there's something that can be pointed to to almost undermine um, the credibility of the faith it feels like that's when you see the the media turning to cover the sbc i'm emily jashinsky of the federalist subscribe to the federalist on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts